and the governor or the president or whatever he is, prime minister in New Zealand, just put on his Arab hat and declared that uh, Muslim uh, religion is in in New Zealand. So it's the, the ring grows tighter day by day and week by week. So we better have some hope somewhere. <laughs> so let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I guess I should have gotten it all done in one sitting, but I didn't. Uh, we started in here into this chapter called the Resurrection Chapter in 15. And uh, he tells them to remember everything that they have learned and keep it at the forefront of their minds lest they forget and miss out how the Christ really did rise from the dead and is now there to resurrect others. And that he was not qualified to be an apostle, but by the grace of God, he had been given that responsibility. But he said in verse 16, If the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. So, you either believe in the resurrection of Christ or you don't. And if you don't, then what hope is there for a normal human being? He says in verse 21 that man issued or ushered in death, Adam and Eve, by sinning and died. But by man, Christ himself made man, came also the resurrection of the dead. Some people say he wasn't really human, and that he really wasn't tempted, and he couldn't have sinned, and that's ridiculous. He had to be a man and tempted in all points, like as we are. If he isn't, wasn't tempted in the same way, in the same fashion as we are, then how does he save us? If there was no real resistance, if he couldn't have sinned, then... How is he? He would be so much different to us. There's no comparison. But since he was human, he could sin. It was a possibility. And only by the grace of his Father in heaven and his own tremendous efforts was he able to stand against sin in a way that none of us have been able to. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, our life is in his blood. God says the life is in the blood, and that is true. If you cut yourself and you bleed out, you die. Your physical life is in the blood. Well, in a greater sense, our life is definitely in the blood of Christ. Because without His blood, we cannot have eternal life. Because His blood is so much more important than us, and our, his life was so much more important than any of us and all of us combined, then our life is in his blood. And that we need to look to continually, because we still sin, we still come short, we still have wrong thoughts, we still have wrong motives, and all kinds of things. Uh, we're still selfish. Uh, the works of the flesh are so easily there for us. Lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, uh, putting others down to raise us up. And I think that the church of God 
is probably the most self-righteous organization on the face of the earth. We tend to put down and criticize one another and and, uh, be judgmental and condemning. And we're so quick to point out the faults of others. Uh, How can this be? He tells us that we are to be encouraging and strengthening and helping each other. And yet, we stab each other in the back almost continually. And most of it is just ridiculous. I I just read a verse back here. I think I'll go back there now. In fact, in in, uh, Acts 24, uh, the Jews were accusing Paul of all kinds of things and stirring up the people against the temple and all. He said in verse 13 of chapter 24, Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. And that is true of most accusations. There's something that are dreamed up in people's thoughts and imaginations. They can't be proved because he hadn't done what they said he was doing. No. How can it be that he wasn't doing it? He was there. He wasn't stirring up the people. He wasn't going out in the city trying to stir up the people. And yet they said he was. They had no proof. They had no witnesses. They had no way to show that that's what he was doing. And they accused him of it anyway because they wanted to what? Get rid of him. Do we want to get rid of each other? (laughs) I don't really think we do. So why do we insist upon bad-mouthing each other and trying to point out faults? Doesn't he tell us, find the good? That we're to get rid of faults, hide faults. That's what Christ said he does. Now, when Satan comes to him and accuses us, what does he do? He says, you're a false accuser. My blood covered that sin. That person repented last night, and I forgave it. So that sin no longer exists, so you're making a false accusation. He puts Satan in his place. Now, we can say all kinds of things about each other. How do we know what's gone through someone's mind? How do we know whether they've asked God to forgive them or not? Why can't we give each other the benefit of the doubt? But boy, we have trouble with that. We had it in Worldwide, and I think that is one of the key reasons God blew it apart. We were so self-righteous. We were better than all the other religions on the world, and we were better than each of us, better than the people around us. In the ministry, they thought that they were better than the other minister. And on and on it went. And God said, this self-righteousness is why I'm blowing you apart. That's what's implied there. You say you're righteous and you aren't. We've had a lot of accusers who have left us. And then we continue to accuse each other. As we get smaller and smaller, we still accuse each other. When do we repent of self-righteousness and come to have the righteousness of Christ? It's the only thing that counts is His righteousness. He says it's His job to get rid of 
and hides sin. That doesn't mean he sweeps it under the rug. It means he washes it clean in his blood. He is not seeking to find sin in us. He's seeking to help us overcome it. Satan is busy trying to find sin in us. That's his job. That's what he does, is find sin and then air it before God and the holy angels in heaven. So who do we look like? More like Christ who is trying to cover sin or Satan who is trying to find it and uncover it? Take your pick. What's it going to be? So Paul had his enemies and he's talking about that here at the beginning of chapter 15. I, you know, I, I don't deserve to be in the ministry, but God put me there. So he says, I'm going to do the job that God gave me to do. So I stopped at verse 23, where he had just stated that because of Adam's sin, we all die. But because of Christ's righteousness, we'll all be made alive. Death looks pretty permanent, and that's what we'll get to here in a little bit. But it is not permanent. He says in verse 23, Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So, he was the first to be resurrected to life. He wasn't the first human to be resurrected. I think we need to keep that in mind. Uh, through Elijah, God raised up the widow's young son. Uh, through Elisha, there were a couple of resurrections. So, there were resurrections to physical life uh, prior to what Paul wrote here. And even Christ himself had raised up, what, three, as I recall, and uh, Peter and Paul himself had been used as an instrument. God doing the resurrection, of course, but using them as an instrument of getting it done. So, he's talking about resurrection to eternal life here, because this is about the first resurrection is what it's about. Christ being the first one raised to spiritual eternal life, not just physical life. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So there have been several physical resurrections in the past. There were quite a few when Christ died and was resurrected. Uh, others came out of the grave at that time. It doesn't say how many, but... Uh, Evidently quite a few. So it would be an example and as a witness to the rest of Jerusalem and the world and to us today. But those that are resurrected at his coming are the first fruits, uh, 144,000 of them, of which we hope to be. Now, everybody isn't resurrected at that point. Revelation 20 makes it very clear that when the millennium ends, uh, there's a general resurrection of the dead, uh, small and great. In fact, where I was just reading that other thing about them not being able to accuse Paul righteously, go down to verse 15 in Acts 24. He says, Have hope toward God uh, about resurrection, which they themselves allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So it will only be the just who are resurrected when Christ 
returns at the seventh trump, 144,000, rise to meet him in the air. The, the, the unjust aren't going to rise to meet him in the air. Uh, they're not going to be changed into spirit when he returns. Their resurrection doesn't come till the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. So even the unjust are going to be resurrected in their own order. But he doesn't go into all that here in verse 23 because he's talking to some of the first fruits, those in Corinth, and he's writing it to us, the first fruits, the church. So he only goes into Christ himself and then we that are resurrected at his coming. We have to have other scriptures to show that the unjust uh, will also be resurrected and have their opportunity at salvation from other scriptures. So he's talking to you and me here. He's talking to the first fruits. Then comes the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So that is when he intervenes on a worldwide basis. He resurrects the just, the 144,000, to marry them, and then to bring them down here and let them live and reign with him a thousand years during the millennium and help those people who are left to come to righteousness. His righteousness. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So all human beings have to have, in their proper order, an opportunity at salvation, because otherwise, if they're not saved from death, that means they have to die again. It is appointed to all men once to die. It is appointed to some men twice to die. In the lake of fire. He didn't say all men to die twice, but a few, because all Israel will be saved and I think God being the successful creator that he is, most humans will be saved. But there will be some who just simply will not bend their will to God. Too much pride, self-centeredness, and all those things that make up a human being. But the last enemy standing will be death. And it will be finished. Uh, Satan will be bound forever, never again to have any freedom in the universe. And anyone who rebels against God will also go into a lake of fire and be burned up, forgotten, and never thought of again. Just gone. But most of mankind will be in the kingdom of God. What about you and me? If most people are going to make it, are we? Let's not forget what we've been taught, because we have every opportunity to be there. Verse 27, For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. In other words, everything's under him but the Father, who's the one that gave him the power and the authority that he has. So the Father will always remain supreme, even above Christ. 
And when all things shall be subdued to him, verse 28, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that the Father may be all in all. So there will be no question. It will be a dictatorship. The Father will be in charge completely over Christ, over all those who have been made a part of his kingdom. The Father will be all in all. And no one will question him ever again. Satan did, and look what has happened. And that will never be allowed to happen again. That's why we're going through such a long boot camp down here, brethren. He wants to be sure that we will never rebel against him ever. So he's putting us through it down here. Let's never forget that. You know, sometimes it might seem like things are tough and my life is tough and why can't I have this and why aren't I that and why, why isn't this happening and that happening? Uh, why aren't I healed? Why, you know, all the things we can ask and feel sorry for ourselves about. Uh, they're there for a reason. They're there for a reason. They're there to see whether we will trust the Father to the end, either our end or when Christ returns, that we would never rebel. He will test us. He will try us. He will ponder us. He'll do things. Uh, he'll chasten us. He'll cause... Now, God does not tempt us with sin. Satan does that in our human nature. But God will try and test us and chasten us in order to see what our reaction is going to be. Will we repent? Will we turn to Him? Will we look to Him constantly? Or will we begin to get, oh, I don't know. He doesn't want any, oh, I don't know, or up there. Or down here. Doesn't need any of those. Doesn't want any of those. He wants people who are utterly, totally committed. And that's what he's looking for. And if you're not utterly, totally committed and he's working his salvation in you, then you're going to have trials and troubles to get you where he wants you to be. He isn't against you. He's doing that for your good. I, human beings have trouble understanding that. We have trouble understanding it with our children. And we have a generation now in the church, we're, we're into third generation type stuff, but uh, we were told that we needed to chasten our children and make them do what they're told and be obedient and not rebel and not pitch fits and not do this and not do that. So we spank them. We used other means of, uh, of punishment in order to get them to do what they should do. Maybe we were a little too harsh. I don't know. I think maybe I was in some ways, and yet all my kids grew up to be upstanding good citizens and uh, don't generally have much of attitude problems. Uh, they recognize authority. They follow it, and uh, they do pretty well for the most part up into their 50s now, uh, 40s and 50s. But maybe I was a little harsh. Maybe we were a little too much on them. And yet, on the other hand, uh, they're doing fine. And yet, so many church kids that grew up, 
being punished and being made to do what they were supposed to do and accept responsibility, now say, well, it's not going to be that way with my kids. All I'm going to do is love them and give them what they want, and they're going to have things that I didn't have. And now we're getting a generation of spoiled kids who want to do things their way and tend to be rebellious, and they're gone. Now, even those that we chastened maybe too much are gone, but now they're not chastening their kids for the most part. They're just letting them grow up like wild weeds, and then they have to deal with it. And it's not much fun living with a kid like that. It's just not much fun. So, uh, God doesn't want that kind. He wants courteous, respectful, loving, kind, uh, serving, giving people in his kingdom that will love one another. And there's, there's going to be absolutely no gossip in the kingdom of God. There's going to be no criticism of each other. Everybody will be able to see and know and understand each other's thoughts the way God knows our thoughts. How would you like it if today everybody here could know every thought that went through your mind? That would be a terrifying situation, wouldn't it? Well, then we'll all be totally converted. We'll be spirit. We'll have the mind of God. And therefore, none of that garbage that goes through our minds will even be there. So, therefore... You can't gossip because somebody will say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm reading his thoughts right now, and that's not what you say. They're just not. Well, we can't do that, can we? So we make our case against each other. There will be none of that. Just It won't exist because everybody will know everybody's thoughts, and everybody's thoughts will be pure. Now, that would be a welcome thing at that time, but I would certainly hate for it to be that way today because there are so many foul thoughts going through so many minds that things would be worse than they are. It's bad enough that we repeat them to each other behind each other's backs, but it would be a whole lot worse if we could see them and know them. So there's got to be change. got to be incredible change. Let's read about that as we go on here. God will be all in all, and no one will question him whatsoever. They will despise what was here. This life is going to be so forgettable that he says, you won't even remember the past. You're not going to be sitting around saying, well, you remember back in 1957? won't even occur to you. Who cares what happened in 1957 or 1963 or 1989? Nobody will care because life will be so exciting, so important, will be so busy doing things that are good that there will be no time to think about the past. You know, that's one of the things that frustrates you the most is when you start thinking about your past. And then you feel guilty for what you didn't do and for what you did do. And you feel sorry for yourself because you weren't better than you were. 
hey, you can't do a thing about it. Forget it. Move on. The past is gone. I don't know how many times I've said that, but we don't believe it because we keep bringing it up, don't we? What somebody did five years ago, what they did five minutes ago, we can't seem to control ourselves. We still like to go back and discuss about how bad a minister was 40 years ago or how bad some member was 50 years ago. Give us a break. Why don't we be busy serving and giving and helping instead of reminiscing about how bad old so-and-so was, how bad the church was? Well, yeah, it was bad. But there comes a point, you know, it's dead now. The Worldwide Church of God is dead. It was Sardis. It died. It's gone. So what good does it do to go back and talk about, oh, how bad it was? You know, people try not to do that with dead people, don't they? Well, I don't mean to speak badly about the dead, they'll say, before they do. But, <laughs> you know, but, but if they're dead, they're dead. What good does it do? And the church is dead. We have survived. And we've got to go on and become Philadelphia. We're not yet. We've got to become that. Nobody's Philadelphia yet. Not until the two witnesses get together and the gathering comes and the remnants of Sardis, a few names, and the remnants of Laodicea, a lot of names, are going to be added to create Philadelphia, the one that will be protected from the tribulation. There are a lot of people who call themselves that today, but they don't even understand what they're talking about. They have no idea what Philadelphia even is. And yet they call themselves the Philadelphia Church of God in one form or another, and they don't know diddledy. That is yet to come. And I want you and me to be part of it when it gets here. So let's uh, not peck each other to death in the meantime, because then we're dead. Then what can we do? And we can peck on each other till we discourage each other to the point that somebody gives up. Well, can't do that. Got to encourage, strengthen, and help. That's what we're here to do. To help your brother, not hinder him. All right. God will be all in all, and there will be no more dissension or rebellion in the universe. That's where I got off onto that, but it's true. Uh, Satan won't be around, and neither will anybody who disagrees. Verse 29, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the hope of the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Well, the word there in the Greek is hopur, or hope of the dead. The Mormons don't understand that, so they go through genealogy after genealogy trying to discover everybody that they're related to and then get baptized for them in case they didn't get baptized. Uh, I guess that probably goes back to see the Mormon church has only been around for what, 150 years or so, or a little, maybe a little longer, not much longer than that. And they've got all these people 
that they're related to that go back for hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years. So they have to go back and find out everybody they're related to because obviously they weren't baptized in the temple, the Mormon temple. Uh, they weren't baptized properly if they were baptized at all. So they got to find out who all of them are so they can get baptized for the dead ones. Now, Acts 2.38 tells us to repent ourselves and be baptized. You can't repent for anybody else, and if they're dead, they're not going to repent. So what good does it do to be baptized for them? You know, you go in and say, well, I found a list of people that I'm related to, so start dunking me. Here we go. Up and down, up and down, up and down, till you get all your relatives that you've been able to find baptized. And then you go into the genealogy books and see if you can find some more. It's crazy. They don't understand the resurrection. They don't understand the great white throne judgment. And that all the dead, just and unjust, are going to come up and have their opportunity to repent and be baptized. All that because they haven't happened to look it up and see why we're baptized. For the hope of the dead. What is the hope of the dead? The resurrection. It's the only hope they got. They're laying in their grave, rotting, turning back to dust. And if they've been there long enough, they're already dust. So their only hope is the resurrection. And that's why I was baptized. It wasn't for somebody, my grandmother and my grandfather, that weren't properly baptized. They were kind of sprinkled a little bit in the Catholic, I'm not the, the Methodist Church, the Catholic sprinkle too. Uh, no, I was baptized for me. My hope is in the resurrection. I ain't going to get baptized for anybody else, just me. How can you? You can't repent for them. You can't straighten them out. We've tried with our relatives. didn't work. So shall we just go say, well, Aunt Tilly ain't going to listen, so I guess I'll go get baptized for her. <laughs> that just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all in light of Scripture. So if God isn't going to be reigning and Christ under him, then what good is there to be baptized in hope of a resurrection. If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the hope of the dead? If there's no resurrection, then he's going to explain what we ought to be doing here. Why stand we in jeopardy every hour? We stand in jeopardy because we can sin, we can give up, we cannot endure to the end perhaps, we can quit, so we're in jeopardy. Our salvation is now on us. God is judging us day by day, right now. He is making a decision on you and me right now. He's separating the sheep and the goats among us right now. He won't do it when He returns. The goats will stay on the ground and the sheep will rise to meet Him. So that judgment will already have been made. You think we're going to stop 600 feet above the, the earth and have a big powwow and then he 
kick some back down? No. If you rise, you rise. The judgment is made. But we stand in jeopardy because salvation and our judgment is now. Others is in the millennium. Others is in the great white throne judgment. Yours and mine, because we have been baptized in hope of the resurrection, is right now. So we're in jeopardy. We could do things that would cause us not to be in his kingdom. So we have to work at it. We're in jeopardy. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. So he was having to put his human nature to death every day. His motivations, his desires, his wishes, his humanness, his selfishness, he had to kill that every day. How do you do that? By putting the knife to the thoughts that come into your mind and the things that your hands do as a result of your thoughts. So he died daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So he was in the business of crucifying himself. Crucifying human nature. He says, I can go to Ephesus, and I can, as a Christian, they'll put me in there with the lions, and I can fight them, and I'm going to die, because lions kill people. And that's what would happen to me. But what good is it if the dead rise not? If there's no resurrection, you might as well just eat and drink and enjoy life any way you want to, for tomorrow we die. This world does not understand the resurrection. They don't understand God's plan. They don't know that we're to become God. So we have our whole culture today, pretty much the whole world, and America leads it as the king of Babylon, in this do what you want, culture. Just whatever feels good, do it. Doesn't make any difference. You are yourself, and self rules supreme. So whatever you want to do, just do it. No constraint, no stopping yourself. Just go for it. If there's not a resurrection, I'm on that wagon. You know? If we don't have a purpose for being here, and that purpose being eternal life and the resurrection, then you might as well be doing anything you want to do. Don't even try to be good. Just, be, just have fun. Isn't that what our, our society is today? Just have fun. Let's entertain ourselves. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Uh, communications there is a very poor translation. It's number 3657 in the Greek if you want to look it up. Companionships. Be not deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good manners. If you're around people who are eating, drinking, and 
not caring for tomorrow we die, uh, being around people like that is going to corrupt your manners as well. So we have to be careful of our companionships and make sure our companionships in the world are very limited. You can't leave the earth. You're around people uh, at your work. You're around people in stores. You're around people here and there. You do business with people. Uh, so we can be friendly. We can be nice to them. We can treat them well. But if we hang around them and they have evil uh, lifestyles, that companionship will draw us away. So he says, don't be deceived and think that I can, I can be Christian and I can do good and... Uh, I can be around people who are evil, and it won't affect me. Don't kid yourself. It will affect you. If you're around it very much, it will begin to affect you. So he says, don't be deceived thinking that you can be part of this world. He says, if you, if you love the world, then you hate God, because God is not in the world. So instead of doing that, he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's saying they're not getting it. They're not getting this knowledge. They're not understanding what this is about. Because they think they can go on like they have been living and then still have the benefits of the resurrection and God. And he says, no. It doesn't work that way. I mean, they were there, but he spoke it to their shame. It was the ones he was addressing in this letter that he said some of them don't have a proper knowledge and understanding of God. And it's a shameful thing, because they're, they're working on themselves maybe a little bit, but to what advantage if you're not going to be in the resurrection? Verse 20, uh, 35, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fool. Now some people like to get technical. Well, so and so died, and how is God going to raise him up? How does he take that which is dead and rotted and corrupted and make it live? They want to know the technical answer to that. There are scientists out there who are trying to figure out how to resurrect dinosaurs right today as we speak. They're getting paid by the U.S. government to try to figure out how to hatch a fossilized egg or whatever it means by collecting the DNA and trying to restructure and create life again. How do you do it? So that's what technically they're after, is how do you do it? Well, I think the answer ought to be quite simple. God took dirt, red dirt at that, and formed and fashioned it, clay model, if you will, into the shape that he wanted it, and then he breathed the breath of life in it, and it lived. We have an example of that with Adam and Eve, if we believe it. Do you really believe? I've made, uh, I've made things with dirt and mud as a kid. I never got any of them to come alive and run around. I don't have that power. 
I believe God does because here we are. We're flesh and blood. We have the breath of life and we have blood in us. If the blood drains out, the breath quits, then we die and stink. But the fact that we're here and alive shows that it had to have been accomplished somehow, some way. And the fact that we can get married and have children from our own bodies and they have life is such an incredible thing. That that baby can form and then be born as a living being. I know we don't believe in evolution, but when you look at how babies are born, there's no way there couldn't be somebody that carefully designed all that. It is so, so ridiculous to think it could be any other way. But some will be stupid fools and say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. How could that be? Well, how can you be standing there with your dumb attitude uh, and be alive if there was no life from death or life from dirt. You fool, that which you sow is not quickened except it die. That which you sow, you sow, sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but... There it is, a seed, a grain. Put it in the ground, put water on it, and life springs up. A little green sprig comes up. And you know what it does? It takes that grain and grows out of it and takes the energy and the life from it and creates a new plant. And then that seed that you planted is empty and dead and worthless at that point. It is given up the life that was in it, to produce a new plant. So he says, it's all around you. It happens. Do you need more technical knowledge than that? But God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. They're all different, and they all produce a different kind of life. I know when my first son was born, he was, there was problems, and he was long, long, long time coming. And when he was born, I thought he was the flesh of birds. His head was shaped like Woody Woodpecker. It even had the tuft in front. Really gross-looking head on that kid. And I thought, oh, that's not my child. It looked more like a bird than a human. But, you know, a day or two, his head kind of came back and began to look human and a lot like me. Unbelievable. But I can't produce fish and I can't produce birds. Only humans. And birds can only produce birds and wheat can only produce wheat. God has set it a certain way, and that's the way it is. So he said, look around you. If you don't think there can be resurrection, uh, you know, you don't, re you don't harvest wheat until it's dead. 
<clears throat> the stalks all turn brown, the grains become hard, and then it's time to harvest. And then you can put them in a big silo or a pile, and if you don't put water to them, they just sit there, and they can go for years and years and years without dying. And when you put them in the ground and put water on them, boom, they grow. So he says, why do you need to know all the technicalities of how God resurrects? It's in everything around you. The birds, the fish, the people, the grains. That life can come from that which appears to be dead. It's all not the same. It all has its own kind. And then he goes on to explain in verse 40 with that background. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. Celestial is in the heavens. Terrestrial is on the earth, the terra. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's only so much glory on this earth. And anything that's born on this earth, or hatched, dies. Not true in the celestial. Celestial. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another in glory. You look up in the heavens, and some are brighter than others. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. So as a human being, uh, we're born as a baby. We were sowed in the flesh, in corruption. And therefore, after so many years on this earth, we will die. Because we're corrupt. But he says, that which is raised eternally is incorruptible. Can't die. You and I don't understand that. Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond our grasp, because we've never seen anything but the physical. So the physical is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Now there's the hope of the dead. You know, as we begin to age, we begin to realize more and more as every year goes by how corrupt we are. Because the eyes go and the ears go and the legs go and the... The liver goes, and the heart goes, and the mind goes, a uh, little at a time, a little at a time, until there we are, not much left, and then we die, because we deteriorate. Not so in spirit. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. There's a difference. If you only live 70, 75, 80, 85, 90 years, or uh, maybe push it and be 100 or whatever, and that's all there is, and then you're dead, and the dead know not anything, what's the point? Why are we here? There's got to be something more. And every culture of mankind that has ever existed has believed in some form or another in an afterlife. 
They don't know anything about God. They don't know anything about this book. But somehow, some way, they believe that there has to be something after this or it's futility. Reincarnation. Some of the Eastern religions are big on that. So are the Mormons. That you come back in another form. You might have been a human this round and you'll be a snake the next round. Or whatever. They hope they keep getting better and better till they can finally be made into a spirit being. But they don't think you die when you die. There's a fellow up here I knew named Steve. And he liked bees. So he, he kept bees a lot. And then when he died of cancer, somebody was making the comment, well, at least we know where Steve is. He's up there buzzing around with his friends. He's become a bee. Well, there's a, there's a great, there's an upgrade for you. Well, I guess at least bees make honey. <coughs> but nonetheless, I guess it would be murder then if you swat a fly. Because some people would, if they come back as bees, they'd come back as flies, wouldn't they? So don't swat them because it might have been your great uncle that wasn't baptized for you. Whatever. But this was written for our inspiration and for our understanding. To give us hope. Verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. So Adam was just created dirt. Christ became a quickening spirit. That is, a resurrected spirit. He had been made human like Adam, but then he was resurrected and given spiritual life, eternal life, again. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So we've got to be human before we can become spirit. <clears throat> the first man is of the earth earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The only one so far that's been resurrected to eternal life. And we're to come up and be with him at his coming, as we saw in verse 22. Verse 48, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is, is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. You're one or the other. Some of us think that we're so spiritual we must almost be spirit, I guess, because we're certainly more of a spirit, spiritual than our neighbors. That's where our self-righteousness comes in. How can so-and-so be like that? Well, turn it around. How can I be like this? You know? There's not any of us that can point fingers. We are earthy. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So it's saying there's a change coming. You're not always going to be human. You'll be spirit. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, when he's talking about inheriting the kingdom of God, he's speaking of the ultimate kingdom of God. The reign of Christ on the earth can be in some ways called the kingdom of God. His kingdom will be established. But the people who are there living in it humanly are not part of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God. When he comes, you and I will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and become spirit. Those people in the kingdom of God will still be physical until it's time for their change to come. So, ultimately, the final, uh, the final phase and the everlasting phase of the kingdom of God, flesh and blood can't be there. Just the initial phase as humans until they're either changed or burned up. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So, how does this which we have, that is us, that is corrupt, become incorrupt and inherit incorruption? Our scientists are trying to do it for us. They're trying to, uh, people are putting up big money in hopes that before their life ends on this earth, science will discover a way to give them long life, eternal life on this earth. They're spending big money to do that. Research. Try to figure out how to grow organs, how to keep us alive, on and on and on. They just don't get it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, I show you a mystery. Here's the mystery of God. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So you can't live eternally as a human being. You have to be changed into spirit so that you are then incorruptible. And that will happen for us, to whom he was writing, the Corinthian church and us, at the last trump. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So it can't die anymore. It has to be changed can't be like it is, because as we are, we're not going to make it very much longer. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is something you've got to believe. There were some of those people there Paul was debating with who believed in the resurrection. Some did not. This is worth working for. This is worth remembering the things we've been taught. This is worth enduring whatever we have to go through for. Because we'll be eternal. And you know what? Even if science did figure out how to keep people alive for an extra 30, 40, 50, 60, 2,000 years, whatever, by replacing their organs every so often, would those human beings still have sorrow and tears and frustrations and problems 
and murder and lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and everything you can name, they'd still be going through all this futility that they're going through. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever come across a family in my experience over the years, in the church or out of the church, that doesn't have problems. They got dopers and drunks and adulterers and liars and thieves and anything you can name that is bad, a family has it. Yours did, mine did, everybody's does, to one degree or another. Some are more obvious than others, uh, but we're all suffering as human beings with all kinds of trouble. Bad health. So what have you gained if they can keep you alive another 30, 40, 50, or 100 years? More misery, more sorrow, uh, more trouble. Takes you longer to finally die. You know, that, that death process does not impress me either. My dad did it right. He, he just fell over, bam, hit the ground, didn't even know he died. Then my mother took another 12 or 14 years to get to 90 without a mind. She wasn't near as good at dying as Dad was. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to put her down, but she went through an awful lot, and so did her kids taking care of her for another 14 years. Yeah, I've been 14. She lived after he died. What a process for her kids to watch her mind going, 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 gone. And her body's still going on until it finally gave up. Not, it's not a pretty picture. I don't want to live beyond a certain point, do you? How long do you want to live? I'm like Al. About a hundred is about enough, you know? Hundreds about enough. Be plenty. I want to be changed. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want to look bad. I don't want to be bad. I want to be like God. And in such a way that it comes natural. With God, righteousness comes as naturally as sin does to us. Now, how easy is it for you to sin? In thought or in deed? So easy. It is just as easy for Him to be righteous. Because He's not like us. His mind is different. And he's going to give us his mind, and then you won't be fighting yourself. Would you want to really live eternally with the mind you now have? I wouldn't. Because too many things discourage us, frustrate us, make us impatient, make us whatever it is that isn't good. And we live as human beings with a certain degree of frustration, no matter who we are. I wouldn't want to live like this forevermore. Shoot me now. I want my mind to be like God's, where it just automatically does right. God can help me do right now, by through His Spirit, I call on Him, and it's a struggle... But I can do right with His help. It's hard, but I can do it with His help. We can do all things through Christ which strengthens us. 
But it's difficult no matter how you slice it. How would it be if your mind automatically went to good? When it automatically desired right? I, I can't imagine it. I've been living with this human mind all my life. I can't imagine one that just automatically does right. Automatically wants to do right. Doesn't have any inclination whatever to do anything wrong. What an upgrade that will be, if you think about it. It's incredible. We won't be corruptible anymore. Our bodies or our minds cannot be corrupted anymore. He says, when that happens, and you have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We all sit here today knowing that time goes on, we're going to die. And some of us have got one foot in the grave and the other one on a banana peel. Uh, We're getting close. Another year, two or three or four or five, most of us right here today would be gone. We need the victory. We need the resurrection. We need to pray that kingdom come soon and we be part of it. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. How is the law the strength of sin? The law tells you what sin is, and then your body and your mind comply with sin and go along with it. It is the law that tells you what sin is. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Emmanuel the Christ. Victory over sin, victory over the law. Because when you break the law and sin, the law kills you. Because the law says if you sin, you die. And the only way you're not going to die is if Christ's blood covers your sin, and then He resurrects you to eternal life. Because you will be sinless in His blood. So, what do we do after being told this? Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal. Our works, the things we do, the way we help, the way we serve. We must be steadfast, unshakable, unmovable, Nothing can shake us. He's going to shake the world, he says there in chapter 2 of Haggai. Tells the rubble bell, it's just a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Are you shakeable? Are you movable? What would it take to shake you? To move you? To, To make you give up? To make you quit? What would it take? What somebody does to you, what somebody thinks about you, your own desires and lusts, anger, bitterness, it's someone else. What does it take to move you, to shake you? Satan's trying to shake us out of the tree, you know. He's, he's given the tree a big shake, always does before Passover, shakes it harder. 
Do we give in to attitudes, desires, feelings about other people? Whatever it might be that gets us in a sour, bitter, angry mood and attitude. My dad, I think, was probably one of the strongest people that I ever knew in God's way. And yet I saw him, after all he had been through, almost become bitter. He almost got bitter. I could see it coming, and I... I borrowed some money to build a house, and I bought him in a, a pickup and a travel trailer with part of it, and had him leave Texas and come up and help me build a house in Idaho to get him away from what was going on. Because they were sending out letters at that time. I will reminisce a little bit about the past, just to make this point. They were sending out letters that you ought to fill up your credit card, sell your house, sell everything you got, Send everything you could into the work for the final push. And while that was coming out of Pasadena, he saw, or he was working at the college, and he was helping build swimming pools for the evangelists at their houses at that time. Now here we are, making everybody give up everything they've got to make the final push, while we spend money on evangelist swimming pools. And then they were building a building for the feast. And one minister would come in and tell them, I don't like that wall there, move it two feet over here and put a door there instead of there. So they'd move the wall over, and then somebody else would come in and say, I don't like that, let's turn the wall the other direction. Or whatever it was they were telling them to do. And this was costing a lot of time and money because they couldn't get their ducks in a row and decide how they wanted the building built. And he's seeing all of this and the utter incredible waste of money that was going on. Ted flying one jet in to play and so on. And I could see that it was possible he could be shaken and become bitter as a result of what he was observing while he was being asked to fill his credit cards up. That was a tough, bitter pill to swallow. And he got away from that, and he didn't get bitter, and he did stay, and he was faithful to the last. But I could see that as faithful and as solid as he was, he could be shaken. All of us can. If just the right circumstance comes, and we may not get help when we need it, we might be shaken. Now, fortunately, I was there. I was listening to Dad. I was hearing what he was going through, and I was able to get him out of there to encourage him, to strengthen him, to get his mind away in his daily view of what was wrong. He got away from that, and he recovered. And I'm thankful that I had a part in helping my dad a little bit. Now, he might have been fine anyway. He might have survived it, but it would have been tough. So when you see your brother going through trouble, what do you do? You help him. 
you be steadfast, you be unmovable, and abound in the work of the eternal. And what is his work? Serving, giving, helping one another. Not putting down, not shaking, not discouraging, not gossiping, but helping. Wherever we can, whenever we can. Now let's think about that. Because that's what God expects of us, to help each other to be ready to be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump.